0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Few countries are free of organized crime. Rackets are easy to run and often hard to eradicate. But in South Africa, corruption and the withering of state capacity have produced an organized crime boom that has blighted the country's economy. And speaking of crime, this sounds like a riddle. How do you steal a 152-kilogram rock wedged under the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey? A chain-smoking student hatched a plan in 1950. Our obituaries editor tells his story. First up, though... The bird is freed. Those were the words tweeted by Elon Musk, founder of Tesla and SpaceX, and the world's richest man, as he completed a $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. There is a lot of back and forth on the deal.
1: Today, Twitter is pushing back against Elon Musk's attempt to back out
2: of his deal to buy the company. Elon Musk changed his mind about buying Twitter again and is now willing to go ahead with his takeover
0: on Thursday, it finally went through, and Elon Musk became Twitter's official owner. His first order of business? Firing the top leadership of the company.
1: Musk has removed Twitter's CEO, CFO, and top lawyer.
0: The question now is, what happens to Twitter and its users next?
1: The completion
3: of this deal brings to a conclusion a months-long saga.
0: Tom Lee Devlin is our global business correspondent.
3: Elon Musk first made an offer for Twitter earlier this year, then he appeared to change his mind. Months of backwards and forwards followed, including the threat of a court trial, and now it appears
0: the deal is done. So Tom, take us through the saga. Tell us how this thing has unfolded.
3: So Elon Musk started buying up shares in Twitter at the start of the year. And By March, he'd accumulated 5% of the company without really making too much noise, And then by April, it was revealed that he was the largest shareholder in the company. From there, things started to move very quickly. A deal was drawn up to buy the company by the end of the month and take it private. But then Mr. Musk got cold feet. Uh, He argued that the proportion of bots or fake users on the platform was far higher than the 5% that the company had been claiming. And so he tried to back out of the deal. Uh, Twitter then took him to court to try and enforce the purchase. And then after some backwards and forwards, will he, won't he? In the end, he decided to go ahead with the deal at the originally agreed price.
0: And one of the first things he did when he took over Twitter was he fired some of the top executives. Why is that? What's that about?
3: Musk has not had a good relationship with the outgoing CEO, Parag Agrawal, for some time. Now, earlier this year, the two had a terse exchange Musk had tweeted, is Twitter dead? Agrawal had responded by text message saying that, you know, those kinds of messages were not particularly helpful for morale. And and Musk then responded saying, what did you get done this week? So the two have clearly not had a good relationship. But I think this is broader. Musk is clearly undertaking quite a thorough clear out of the top ranks of the company, It's not just the CEO that's leaving. The chief financial officer, Ned Segal, is reported to have left the company and also its chief legal executive.
0: And what do you think that says about about the direction that Musk wants to take Twitter? What are some of his next steps, do you think? Musk
3: clearly wants to do something big with Twitter, but I think it's still to be seen what exactly that's going to look like. He's talked about turning the company into X, the super app, without really presenting a lot of detail around what exactly that's going to look like. He's also indicated that he intends to do quite a substantial restructure of the company. Washington Post about a week ago reported that Musk was planning to lay off as much as 75% of Twitter's workforce. Now, in recent days, Musk has reportedly rejected that figure in discussions with Twitter employees. But I think it's fair to say that he's planning some pretty radical surgery at the company what exactly that's going to look like remains to be seen.
0: And what kind of impact do you think Musk will have on the culture of Twitter? I mean, he's he's gotten himself in some trouble before over things he's tweeted. Do you think he'll be a responsible owner?
3: So Musk has said that he's not buying Twitter for the money, but for the benefit of humanity. And in particular, Musk has been really critical for a long time of Twitter's stance on free speech and content moderation. So I think it's fair to say that there are going to be some big changes here around how Twitter approaches that issue. Now, Musk has reassured uh, advertisers that use the platform that the service won't devolve into a, quote, free-for-all hellscape. So there will be some limits to what he does, I imagine. But I think that it's also fair to say that there's going to be a significant shift in the ethos around free speech at Twitter.
0: And obviously we can't talk about Twitter without talking about its most famous former user, Donald Trump. He was banned from the platform. Do you think Musk will let him back? I think that remains to be seen.
3: Trump was banned from Twitter after the January 6th Capitol riot. Uh, Musk was not a fan of that decision and, and has pledged to reverse it. Now, Mr. Trump has said that he won't return to Twitter, but his true social platform that he has developed has really struggled to gain traction and has had difficulties with financing. So I suspect, given the opportunity, Trump would jump on the, on the chance to be back on his favorite social media
0: platform. This comes shortly before the American midterm elections, Do you think Mr. Musk's ownership could influence political outcomes here in the U.S. and and beyond?
3: Well, I think the concern with this deal landing when it has so close to the midterm elections is just the state of disarray that it's going to leave the platform in. I think that exposes Twitter to abuse by... Dodgy political actors who perhaps want to use the platform to to stir up doubt around the election results. So I think that is a real concern to watch over the coming weeks.
0: And finally, Tom, how has the deal gone down with Twitter's users? It's
3: really been quite divisive. On the one hand, you have commentators on the right of politics who are delighted by Musk owning Twitter. They've argued for a long time that the platform's content moderation policies were were silencing conservatives. And so they think it's it's the best thing to happen to the platform. On the other hand, you have a lot of Twitter users who have expressed horror at the idea of Musk being in charge of the platform and potentially turning it into this unrestrained environment for free speech that will allow hate speech and other unpleasant toxic dialogue to thrive on the internet so in many ways no clear consensus among twitter's users on on what this means and whether it's a good thing for the company
0: all right tom thanks so much for your time today
3: thank you very much john
2: traffic jams tailgating pile-ups
0: Violent crime and extortion affect every country around the world, but in few are they as endemic as in South Africa.
1: The questions are still being asked about the reason for a recent spate of mass shootings here in South Africa. A few weeks ago, seven people-
0: Crime has been so high for so many years that many middle-class people already live in elaborately fenced off houses.
1: If
2: you are in South Africa, there is one thing you will definitely notice. High security in almost all homes, homes with high walls, electrical fencing, and extra gates.
0: But those high crime rates are getting even higher.
1: Households in South Africa are witnessing an exponential increase in crime rates. Incidents of housebreaking, home robbery, assault, and murder have been on the rise. It's no secret that there's a lot of crime in South Africa. As it happens, I was burgled myself last week. John McDermott is
0: the economist's chief after correspondent.
1: And there are plenty of media reports, both within the country and outside, about murders and carjackings and home break ins. But there's a lot more to the story than just petty and random crime. So, what do you mean by that, John? The thing that often goes unnoticed about crime in South Africa is that much of it is not random, it is actually the result of an organized crime boom that has taken place over the past 10 to 15 years. And this boom was well documented in a report published last month by a think tank known as the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, which is headquartered in Geneva but run by a South African. It documented a slew of what it calls illicit markets and showed how the vast majority of which are growing at an alarming pace. And in an earlier paper, it ranked South Africa as 19th in the world for organized criminality. That puts it just ahead of infamous places such as Libya and Russia. And while listeners may be familiar with Mexico's drug cartels or Iraq's arms traffickers, what the report makes clear is that South Africa, in this area at least, has an envious economic diversity Few countries play host to so many illicit markets as it does. Tell me about those markets. A lot of the sectors that organized crime is involved in are the stuff of movies. So you have the drug trade. Heroin goes from Afghanistan to Europe via South Africa, and cocaine goes from Latin America to Asia via South Africa too. The country is also a hive of wildlife crime. So you get rhino and elephant poaching, which is fairly well known about, but also more esoteric animal trafficking, such as in Rock Lobster and Abalone, which is a kind of marine snail. Kidnapping is becoming an increasing problem, especially due to the rise of syndicates who are demanding ransoms. And gun runners who are dealing in the more than two million unregistered firearms in the country just make absolutely every crime worse. But in addition to the stuff of drugs and guns and poaching... A lot of organized crime is increasingly targeting legitimate business. In what way? What sorts of businesses? Well, take a recent example from some conversations I was having with miners in South Africa. There's a big mining firm called Goldfields, which runs one of the largest gold mines in the world, traces its roots back to Cecil Rhodes. And last year it said it was going to start building this huge solar power plant to help power its operations in the mine just outside Johannesburg. But shortly after it made this announcement, it started getting messages from self-styled business forums. Now, a business forum may sound fairly benign, but in South Africa, these groups are, in effect, extortionists. They demand cuts of construction projects, and they're not afraid to use violent invasions and intimidation to get their way. And this is not an isolated case. How widespread are these business forums? They're increasingly common. Since 2015, they've spread from the province of KwaZulu-Natal to the rest of the country. And in 2019, analysts reckoned that they affected almost 200 projects worth around $4 billion. And perhaps the most brazen case was when a business forum invaded a project to build what would have been the highest bridge in Africa. And this was a project that was being built by a couple of firms, one South African and one German. And after the two firms pulled out, the South African boss said of his German partner, these guys have worked in 80 countries, including Afghanistan and Iraq, but they've never experienced anything like this. So that just goes to show the scale of intimidation that these guys are putting on legitimate business.
0: And what do they want? Are they only after a payday or is it something deeper?
1: Many of these business forums say that they are doing their own form of transformation, i.e. they are trying to uplift Black people who, of course, were systematically discriminated against under apartheid. When they invade these construction sites, they demand a very specific percentage of the construction contract, 30%. And they get that fraction from a law which says that 30% of public procurement must go to, quote-unquote, local firms. Now, of course, that's about public procurement rather than private businesses. But they use this rhetoric of transformation to try and justify what is effectively criminal behavior. But it's a funny way of doing it. And ultimately, this rhetoric of transformation is a facade for criminal behavior, which is contributing to the wrecking of the economy. How has organized crime got so bad in South Africa? There are several reasons for the trend. Some date back to the transition from apartheid to democracy. Some speak to South Africa's relative openness to the rest of the world, and that includes the rest of the world's criminals. But ultimately, the main reason is that the South African state has been enfeebled by a corrupt ruling party, the African National Congress. And organized crime came before Jacob Zuma, who was the president from 2009 to 2018. And as we've seen, it's certainly outlasted him. But there's no doubt that it exploded under his reign at the same time as corruption did more broadly. Now, in South Africa, the corruption under Jacob Zuma is known as state capture. And there are two aspects to that, one of which is often forgotten. The one that everyone talks about is the looting of state-owned enterprises, such as ESCOM, which is the utility that some of the time keeps the lights on. But the other aspect of state capture was the evisceration of the law enforcement agencies that are designed to stop crime happening in the first place. So you have the national prosecutor, you have the police, and you have domestic intelligence agencies all hollowed out, all stuffed with cronies. And that has meant that good officers are unable to get a handle on the problem, and also that there are increasingly bad apples in these organizations who have actually been convicted, among other offenses of drug dealing, gun running, and aiding illegal mining.
0: And what are authorities doing about it now?
1: As is the case on so many issues, President Cyril Ramaphosa, Mr. Zuma's successor, has promised to improve things. But as usual, there is a huge chasm, a gold mine-sized chasm between his rhetoric and reality. The police and the prosecutors are still struggling. They're still failing, ultimately, to get a handle on this growing phenomenon. So those who can afford it, whether that is big business or wealthy individuals, are increasingly opting for private security. I have it in my own it's When we were burgled last week, The first people we called were not the police, but the local private security company, who came within about six minutes. And in 1997, there was roughly one private security guard for every policeman in the country. According to my calculations today, the ratio is about four to one. So that just shows you how rather than rely on an increasingly feeble state for security, the state's most basic function, people are turning to private solutions.
0: Before I let you go, I just want to ask one question about something you mentioned earlier. How did goldfields end up dealing with the business forums that were after it?
1: In the case of the big gold miner, the company stood its ground, but it came at a cost. It built more fences at the site to protect it, and it paid for bodyguards, ultimately, for employees. Ultimately, those extortionists went away, but there's no doubt they'll be back somewhere else soon enough.
0: All right, John, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, John.
2: Scotland's Stone of Destiny is a rather strange-looking object.
0: Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor.
2: It's a block of sandstone, fairly large, about the size of four bricks, and weighing 152 kilograms. It's marked with chisel holes and cracks, and looks rather unprepossessing. The reason that all these details were so interesting to Ian Hamilton was that he had hatched a plan to steal the Stone of Destiny from where it was. But where it was was fitting very tightly underneath the ancient wooden coronation chair of the Kings and Queens of England in Westminster Abbey. When he had this idea in 1950, he was a law student at Glasgow University. He was 25 years old. He was determined to get this stone because of its importance to Scotland. It had been stolen away in 1296 from the Abbey of Scone by Edward I, the King of England. He'd taken it because he knew that the legend had it that Scotland could never prosper if this stone had gone. The English were supposed to give it back again, and in 1328, Edward III signed a treaty saying he would, but he never did. And so the stone was still sitting in England, and it seemed to be a mark of Scottish subjection. It had originally had, according to legend, a much more interesting and virtuous life. It had been the pillow on which Jacob had slept in the Old Testament and had dreamt of the ladder of angels going up and down to heaven. Then it had been brought by the prophet Jeremiah via Egypt and Spain to Ireland, where it had become the coronation chair of the high kings. And after that, it came to Scotland and became the coronation chair of the Scottish kings for centuries before Edward I made away with it. And so it was extraordinarily important to Scottish national feeling to have this stone in Scotland. And so he hatched his plot. He was the mastermind, and he got three friends from the university to help him do it. He went to the Abbey to try and scope it a little to find out how they could best get hold of the stone. His first plan was to get himself locked in at night, but he was found by a night watchman and thrown out as a drunk. So the next night, just before Christmas, they went back to the abbey and did get in, through the softer door by the poet's corner. And they got into the abbey and managed with a lot of shifting and straining to get the stone out from under the coronation chair. But as Ian Hamilton edged the stone onto his coat so that he could drag it away, he pulled one of the rings too hard and the stone broke in two. So for one awful, sickening moment, it seemed he had actually destroyed the very thing he'd come to rescue. But it seemed, in fact, that it was a good thing the stone was now in two pieces. It made it much easier to deal with So he was able to take the smaller piece, pick it up like a football and run out with it and get it into the getaway car. He then had to somehow go back to the abbey and find the second part of the stone. But he'd lost the car keys to the second getaway car. He'd managed to drop them in the dark. He ran back to the abbey and found again that the strange power of the stone seemed to be working in their favor because he trod on the missing keys in the dark and managed to find the second part of the stone, get it out of the second getaway car, and together they got clean away. There was now one problem, however, which was that they had to get rid of the stone or hide it. Suddenly, this stone had become their responsibility and really a bit of a burden round their necks, and suddenly it remained a burden round Ian Hamilton's neck for the rest of his life. But on that particular day, they had to drive out of London and try to find a rough place where they could conceal it. Eventually, they managed to get it over the border to Scotland, dousing it with whiskey as it went in a special ceremony. Within a few months, however, it seemed certain that they had somehow got to give the stone back. The best way was simply to leave it on the altar in Arbroath Abbey under a saltire the Scottish flag and alert the police to go and find it there. There was a part of him, of course, that felt very proud about having rescued it. There was a part of him that was always a daredevil and rode around on motorbikes until he was in his 80s. So that was the man who had stolen the stone, but he also felt that it was not right that he should have become famous for doing this daft thing as he thought of it where people who had actually given their lives for Scottish independence, or had given their lives in the war, were not remembered as keenly as he was. So he found the stone quite a burden. And it was only in 2008 when a film came out that he felt he was ready to look at it again.
1: In the Highlands of Scotland,
2: A symbol of freedom was kept, the stone of destiny. By that time, it had actually been restored to Scotland, though on a loan, and it was sitting in Edinburgh Castle. So Ian Hamilton felt very clear that the tide of Scottish independence was now running the right way but he was still haunted by the last view he had had of the Stone of Destiny after he'd left it on the altar in the ruins of Arbroath Abbey. He'd looked at it sitting there between the blood-red walls of the Abbey and seeming to him to cry out Scotland's defiance.
0: Anne Rowe on Ian Hamilton, who died at the age of 97. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editor this week was Marguerite Howell. The sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westren, Jack Gill, and Jonjo Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, with extra production help this week from Margaret Kadifa and Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday.